From CBR News, this is Colorado Matters. A church at the heart of a Hispanic community in southwest Colorado, a homestead on the plains where African Americans sought respite from racism. Behind all these sites that we're trying to work with to save, there are many wonderful stories and they're very powerful when they're told in the voices of the people who most relate to them. Working to preserve some of the state's historic yet endangered places with an emphasis on inclusivity. Then athletes dream of going to the Olympics. So do the folks who officiate the sports. That's the biggest honor. I've worked long and hard for this, but to have the opportunity and to see it come to fruition is, for me, it's an absolute dream come true. We'll meet two people from Colorado in Beijing who keep the action going on the ice. Hi, my name is Laura. I decided to become an Evergreen member because I listen to CPR every day and I count on CPR for news. So it was time and I feel great. You get to hear it all thanks to CPR's community of support. Join that community with your first gift now. Evergreen memberships start at $5 a month. That sustaining donation builds a strong foundation of funding for Colorado Public Radio. Start your membership now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Historic preservation is changing, choosing what to save and why. And it just so happens Colorado's most endangered places list is marking its 25th year, this time highlighting a number of spots that reflect the heritage of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as rural life. Kim Grant of Colorado Preservation, Inc. is here. Welcome back, Kim. Thank you. First off, talk just a little bit about this kind of reckoning going on in historic preservation. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel it and see it in your own circles? Well, I think it's part of a larger national conversation going on around the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. And um, the preservation community has been more and more attentive to that. And while we have worked with a number of sites um, reflecting, you know, more diverse heritage and history over the years, you know, we realize that it, it's time to really make a push for this because there's many great stories and we need to let folks tell their own story too. So behind all these great sites that we're trying to work with to save, there are many wonderful stories and they're very powerful when they're told in the voices of the people who you know, who most uh, relate to them. The Endangered Places Program has listed 130 historic sites in Colorado in the past quarter century. 54 have been declared saved. That's about 42%. Mm -hmm. Is, is Is that a good track record? Yes, it is a good track record because none of these sites are easy when we get involved with them. Um, by definition, they're threatened or endangered, in some cases, pretty dilapidated condition. And so it's it's a bit of a long-term endeavor for certain sites. Um, very rarely are they turned around very quickly, and it, it takes some partnerships in the community, and it takes resources, and it often uh, takes some time to do that. So that's one of the things that we've learned over the last 25 years, is that you have to kind of take a long-term perspective on these. Yeah, you say resources, money. I mean, you're talking about money and time, and that's not necessarily something 
uh, folks in, in these particular communities might have a lot to spare. Yeah, and the other critical thing is technical assistance. You know, helping people find um, the expertise they need to carry out preservation work. So it's it's both resources and it's uh, technical knowledge about how to restore historic buildings and preserve and protect sites. All right. In in these 25 years, name a site or two that has been spared. And uh, maybe that's like picking a favorite child. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of them on the list. Um, One of mine that has particular resonance for me is is one we announced this year, which I know uh, we've talked about before, which is Denver Tramway Streetcar number 0.04. And that was an eight or 10 year labor of love. And it truly was in a ruinous state. And when we got it up to Cheyenne to the shops to be worked on and started looking into it, it's a miracle it even made it up there. And, and this is a tram, a tram vehicle. It's a trolley, a streetcar. And it was the very last streetcar to run on the Denver uh, tramway system in revenue service uh, right before they shut down the system in, in 1950. And you were saying that it was in pretty bad shape. It was in very rough shape. And it's not one that you uh, sort of restore in a pristine way, because one of the interesting things about this streetcar is that it also went to Leiden, where the coal mines were that powered the tramway system. And so coal miners would ride it to work and and back home. And, you know, it was a pretty um, utilitarian kind of streetcar and not quite as beautifully restored as, as a similar streetcar is in Lakewood. Uh, where had it been, and where is it now? It was on a storage lot for nearly 20 years, and then we moved it up to a really interesting site outside of Cheyenne that was an old missile site, not the silos that go down into the ground, but a shed as part of a complex of three of them where the old Atlas missiles um, were stationed. Hmm. And uh, Michael Pinnell, the contractor, rents space there and works on uh, railroad cars there. And it's there right now awaiting its final um, transport back to Arvada to be displayed in Old Town. In Old Town, Arvada, okay, which Mm -hmm. has recently been reconnected to the metro with its own train. Yeah. Um, Another site that we're working on, making some progress on, is the Adobe Potato Barn at the Garcia Ranch in, in the San Luis Valley. And we've got some grant funding in place to work on that, and we're real excited about that. So there's just a lot of them to pick from to try to answer your question. Potatoes are big in the San Luis Valley. It's not just Idaho. And so this is what, a barn that would have stored picked potatoes? Yes. Yes. And it's climate controlled because it was adobe with a double walled structure that created an air pocket that added to the insulation, created perfect conditions for storing potatoes. Ha! Without actual refrigeration. Yeah. Cool. Okay, let's talk about the sites, at least some of them, that you're highlighting on this year's Endangered Mm -hmm. Places list. Uh, One of them we've talked about before on Colorado Matters, that's Deerfield in Weld County, spelled D-E-A-R because the land was so dear to those who owned it. A farming community on the plains in the early 1900s that really embodied the dreams of the black folks who homesteaded there. People were very hopeful, and they really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. 
That's Terry Nelson from Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in the documentary Remnants of a Dream. There's now an effort in Congress led by Colorado Representatives Jonah Goose and Ken Buck. They've co-sponsored a bill to add Deerfield to the national park system. Uh, What stands out to you about the story of Deerfield? Deerfield may be um, certainly the most important site of its type in Colorado and one of the most important west of the Mississippi outside of Nicodemus, Kansas. Um, There's really only three buildings left at Deerfield, but it really embodied the notion that if Black people were able to own land and, and build homes, they would gain independence and be able to pass assets on to their heirs and and, uh, be successful. And unfortunately, things like the Dust Bowl intervened and caused the place to slowly vanish over time. But through the efforts of uh, the Black America West Museum and a couple professors at the University of Northern Colorado and the Deerfield Dream Project, they have made um, significant progress recently and just got a $498,000 National Park Service grant from the African-American Civil Rights Program. And that will help them with the restoration of the filling station. And it's a huge, huge leap forward. The filling station. So there was a gas station there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to many other businesses, I believe. Yeah, there were churches. There was a lunchroom, a blacksmith shop, several homes, and several farms kind of in and around the periphery. And this was a site that that was really threatened a few years ago by uh, a developer who wanted to build modular homes, including in some areas in the National Register District. But there was a land swap that was engineered to protect the core area of Deerfield from that development. And that was another important milestone. Which shows you that sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step back and three steps forward. Um, Yes. Another place you've declared endangered is the Iglesia de San Antonio, Tiffany Catholic Church in southern La Plata County, so southwestern Colorado. Tell us about this church's significance. This church represents the uh, early Hispano settlement of the uh, riverine valleys in the area along the old Denver and Rio Grande uh, railroad line that heads to Durango. And it was built lovingly by the local people using local materials, adobe and stucco, And it's a charming little building in the town of Tiffany, but there's really little of anything left in the town. However, there's an annual mass that's held there each year, and the local caretakers got it listed on the endangered places a couple of years ago, and we successfully uh, acquired a grant to do a structural and engineering assessment and create a preservation plan for it. So we now have a pretty good idea on a path forward to do this uh, restoration project in uh, stages. Uh, It's a beautiful little building. It's in very rough shape on the outside, but the inside's in in pretty good condition. And uh, it's just a wonderful little uh, building that we hope in in a year or two to have fully uh, restored. Oh, I'm I'm so delighted to have learned about Tiffany, Colorado. I guess I'm a little embarrassed I didn't know about it. But but going to Mass there, um, it must be a, quite an intimate experience. It is, and there's a huge turnout every year. Um, the building's actually owned by the Archdiocese of Pueblo, and when the congregation uh, closed officially, uh, the folks that went there went to the nearby Catholic church in Ignacio, and um, 
all, both of those entities are interested in supporting this project as we move forward. Yeah, I imagine that buy-in is really important with these projects. Not all your endangered places are positive history. Boarding schools used to assimilate indigenous children have made headlines in the past year after a mass grave was found at a school in Canada. Uh, That prompted U.S. officials to look at the legacy of these types of schools in this country. So talk about the Southern Ute Boarding School campus in Ignacio. You've mentioned Ignacio already. Why is that boarding school at risk? It is one of the most intact boarding school campuses in the United States, and it's really the only one that is intact in that way in Colorado. And the Southern Ute tribe has surveyed tribal membership to determine what to do with the buildings. There's really three primary buildings and then uh, a veterans memorial on this campus. Hmm. And inside them, there are also some spectacular WPA era murals done by tribal member Sam Ray in about 1936 or so. So there's uh, a real awareness on the part of the tribe that it's a real important resource, and it's also an opportunity to tell their story about this really difficult period in American history. And and it was a period characterized really by a a genocidal campaign to forcibly assimilate uh, Native Americans, indigenous people into European American culture, and really with disastrous results that that the tribe is still dealing with today. Yeah, there's something almost twisted about the thought that there are murals by an indigenous person in a school meant to subjugate them. That That is a lot to unpack. Well, one of the key things that happened, though, was at a certain point in history, uh, the federal government began to realize that this effort wasn't working. And um, they slowly switched gears a little bit and, and began to uh, allow the students and, and the tribe to reclaim some of this history. And the repainting of those murals was, was part of that effort. Oh, um, fascinating. Uh, and indeed, this is a living example of how the structures can help continue to tell a story and, and really become lessons for future generations. Uh, two two other locations of note on this year's endangered places list in Colorado. A grocery store in Grand Junction is at the center of a thriving Italian-American community there. Uh, it has a new owner who plans to preserve the work of Italian stonemasons from 1909. Mm-hmm. The Union Pacific Pump House on the other side of the state in Kit Carson from the late 1870s. I guess because locomotives actually used more water than coal. They needed a pump house. Uh, This is the last one of its kind in Colorado. Is it, I don't know, like a real soul searching to come up with the list and all of the things you might not be able to put on it in any given year? Yes, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, we've had over 600 sites nominated in 25 years and only 130 made the list. But this year, because it was our 25th anniversary, we thought that was a good time to kind of take stock and calibrate and um, maybe focus on these five that we just talked about that have been on the list for a while and try to um, keep the momentum going or jumpstart them. in some cases. Kim, thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Thank you. Always great to talk with you. 
Kim Grant directs Colorado's Most Endangered Places list. It's a project of Colorado Preservation, Inc. The list is turning 25. When we come back, the Olympic dream doesn't just belong to athletes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. The Winter Games in Beijing feature more than two dozen athletes from Colorado, but they're not the only ones with Olympic aspirations. Jackie Spresser of Thornton is in China to officiate women's ice hockey. She and fellow linesperson Kendall Hanley spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Welcome to you both. So glad you're here. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Super pumped. Thanks for having us on. So you're nearly a full day ahead of us. We're taping this bright and early here in Colorado. Actually, it's dark outside here in Colorado. It's just after 6 a.m., but it's after 9 p.m. there in Beijing. Jackie, has that crazy time difference hit you hard? You know, it it was actually an easy adjustment for me this time. Um, But I think it's just because the travel getting over here was very, very long. So uh, I was awake for about 36 hours. <laughs> so it was an easy adjustment. Oh, and Kendall, was it okay for you? You know, we've, we've kind of, uh, you know, over the years, you kind of figure out how to adjust to the time zones, but it's definitely, it's, it's dark right now here too. So we can uh, appreciate it being dark where we both are, but you know, you just kind of have to make sure that you plan it out and uh, plan for the time zone change. And then a lot of times keep yourself up. And like Jackie said, 36 hours of travel, <laughs> it was pretty easy to do. <laughs> yes. It's 6 a.m. I don't typically get up this early, so I apologize for being <laughs> You know, so Jackie, you and Kendall are lines persons, which are different from refs. Can you give us a brief explainer of what you both do on the ice? The easiest way to explain it, I guess, is that linesmen are primarily responsible for icings and offsides and dropping the pucks. Um, That's in its most simplest explanation, where the referees are calling goals and penalties. But that was certainly a very simplistic way to put our jobs. There's a lot to it. Now, before this interview, I double-checked the International Ice Hockey Federation and what they call what you do. They're saying linesperson, but you're saying linesmen. Do you have a preference? I think linesman has always been the common term used, um, but lately they're making a push towards using linespersons, I think, just to be more inclusive. And Kendall, I also read that one of the jobs of a linesman is to uh, break up fights. <laughs> yeah, depending on the level, there could be a fight <laughs> and um, and any given day. But yeah, we're also part of uh, player control um, and helping you know, there's a lot of things that we can do during stoppages, you know, and just, you know, with player control and communication that can kind of help mitigate some of that from happening. But it does happen in the in the game, depending on the league. And part of our duty is to kind of manage it and control it and break it up. Kendall, I should note that you don't live in Colorado now, but you do have a connection here. You're the former director and coach for the Colorado Select Girls Hockey Association. 
how were you two selected to officiate? Is it a lottery or a nomination process? How does that work that you're officiating Olympic hockey games? You know, it's uh, for me, it was a 14-year process. Um, I started wow. right after getting done with college hockey. I, I fell in love with uh, this side of the game and my mind was open to it. Um, you know, I didn't originally think uh, uh, about officiating right away, but I met somebody that, um, you know, explained what it was and what their the goals and pathways that it could be. And, and a lot of it translated over from the playing side of things and uh, fell in love with it. And, you know, I started at the local grassroots level and worked with a lot of incredible mentors and um, supervisors over the years. And, and you just kind of work your way up through the development process and, and that ladder of development. Um, and you set your goals and, you know, eventually, hopefully one day you're able to achieve, achieve that dream. And um, obviously being here with Jackie, that, that dream has come true for us. And Jackie, here in Colorado, you're a police officer with the Northland Police Department. How did you get into this uh, uh, side of hockey? Well, my whole family is originally from Detroit. So they're from hockey town, as I know it. Right, and right. My dad uh, was a longtime official, and once I stopped playing hockey competitively, I, I kind of missed a certain aspects of the game, and opportunities were presented to me that I could kind of have that team concept still through officiating and go to some of the higher-level tournaments that I was missing um, through officiating. So I kind of joined early on to make a couple extra bucks as a teenager, but then it turned into something I was really passionate about and kind of helped fill what was temporarily a void within hockey that I was really missing. So, But what about the Olympics? I mean, how does one get chosen to officiate an Olympic game? So you work uh, hockey games at your, at your local levels, so just locally within whatever state that you're in. And then we're provided the opportunity to go to a couple different camps through USA Hockey. And at one of those camps, you get a license to work international hockey. So you're actually licensed as an official to work um, in the IHF, which is the International Ice Hockey Federation. And then once you start working for them... Um, they kind of just evaluate your performance and you have some level of a ranking. And when it comes time to make Olympic selections, um, it's all kind of based off of previous performance and your current your current rank within their association. So in any event, it, it must be an honor to be there in Beijing. That's the biggest honor. Um, I've worked long and hard for this, but to to have the opportunity um, and to see it kind of come to fruition is really, a, for me, it's a, an absolute dream come true. Kendall, what's it like being at the Olympics and officiating some pretty big games, including the first meeting of the U.S. and China during the prelims? I'll say the U.S. lost to Canada 4-2, to but they're, they're still in it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously just getting here and processing everything, uh, you know, taking that moment when you hit the ice to to embrace it all and take it in. And, uh, the facilities here, are, I've worked in both rinks, uh, and it's just incredible. So, you know, we generally have that routine of hitting the ice as a team and taking a uh, two or three hard laps. Um, you know, so taking the time to find your legs and, and also just thinking into yourself about the game ahead and, you know, thinking about the people and the, and, the, and how you got here. 
the village behind us. Uh, we have an, we both have an incredible village of people, uh, family, friends that are, are cheering us on and rooting for us and have been a part of this journey and we wouldn't be here without them. So I think, you know, for me, it's, it's recognizing that. And then, you know, when that puck drops, it's, it's game on. So, so you said, get your legs when you're out in the ice and, and getting ready and prepared. What, what mentally has to happen for you when you're uh, getting ready for a game? You know, there's a lot of pregame. Uh, obviously, we've got some incredible tools available to us with video resources, um, you know, mental preparation partners, just, you know, pregame discussions with your teammates. Um, you know, you kind of just have a routine of how you go through things and how you're going to handle such certain situations if they come up on the ice. Um, looking at how teams have been, you know, doing things throughout the tournament. You know, that homework side of the game that, you know, people don't really think about or know that we do. We do we do a little bit of homework uh, is what I call it, and, you know, coming into the competition and, uh, you know, knowing your your personnel on the ice, knowing your personnel on the bench. So it, it's just a very, you know, making sure as a team you're ready to go. I think every one of us here has a little bit of a different pregame routine, um, but there's a lot of preparation um, that goes into each game prior to stepping on the ice. So we do pay attention to tendencies of players on each team and we get to know our, our own partners really well that we're going to be working the games with and just make sure that we all have a good understanding of, of the expectations of the crew and then know what we can know about the teams to the best of our ability and, and go out there and do our job. So you and Kendall could be on the ice together at the same time during these, these games? Kendall and I were in the same pod for the preliminary rounds, so we did get to work together. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why was it awesome? I can I can speak to that. Um, you know, obviously Jackie and I. Um, Jackie's somebody that I early on in my career. She's been around the block a little bit longer than I have, but uh, you know, she was actually I met her finally. Um, I was a camper at uh, Rocky Mountain District Advanced Officials Experience way back in 2011 and she was there as an instructor and she's somebody that I've looked up to as you know for a long time as the official that I want to be and has set the example on how to be that official and uh you know over or the course of uh you know our officiating careers we've become great friends and cross paths at various tournaments and um you know we were in Lake Placid together last year and you know, away from the game, we travel, uh, we actually have, uh, weekends where we'll set in the summers to hang out, uh, with a couple other of our officiating friends. And, you know, it's just been it's un- un- surreal to be able to, you know, be not only in Calgary with her, but also at these games. It's, it's just extra special, you know, for me and, and, and to hit that ice with her. Jackie, I wanted to go back to something I mentioned in the beginning of this interview that you were part of an all-woman efficient team for the 2020-2021 NWHL season. I read it was the first time that it happened. How is the sport welcoming more women into hockey? Do you view yourselves as bastards for the sport on and on and off the ice? Um, we certainly try to be. Um, there were plenty of of amazing female officials who kind of paved the way prior to us, uh, but the game is certainly growing on the women's side. Female hockey players are much more prevalent than they were even, you know, when I was in high school when I played. So the game is growing and we're certainly trying to grow the officiating side of that. And you get a lot of young girls who just love hockey. So helping them to see that this side of hockey is pretty incredible in itself is is something that we we work for because I 
now at least would would much rather officiate a game than play this has definitely become my passion and obviously i'm i'm sitting in beijing at the olympics so i would say it's certainly taken me to places i never imagined possible so i i definitely try to be an ambassador for for females in the game yeah and kendall it sounds like there's almost a, a se- well there is a separate track from being someone you know who is an efficient as opposed to someone who is a player yeah i mean but there's a lot of crossover and like i said earlier with um you know the dynamics of it we're a team we're working together to serve the game. You know, there's a lot of preparation that goes behind it, both physically, mentally, um, emotionally. Um, and, you know, just like a player, there's a development process inside to it. And you have a lot of challenges. You got a lot of peaks and you got a lot of valleys. And um, it's in- just incredible the opportunities that exist um, with the officiating side. And every day they just continue to expand. Well, I really appreciate you both being here. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very Thank much you for so having much. us. Jackie Spresser of Thornton and Kendall Hanley. They're both officiating women's ice hockey at this year's Winter Olympics in Beijing. Speaking there with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.